from KQED. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports research and civil dialogue on the deepest questions facing humankind. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Exactly. 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 A conversation series in search of a finer point. Now, here's your host, New York Times bestselling author Kelly Corrigan. Here's what was on my mind. Is knowing more always good? Like knowing more about the NSA or our interrogation techniques as a country or where my husband is or what my daughter texted her boyfriend last night at midnight. Or my DNA or my mother's proclivity toward cancer. So I called my friend Mary Roach. No topic is off limits with Mary Roach. She's written nothing but bestsellers since she hit the scene with Stiff in 2003. In front of 155 people, we covered everything from oysters and martinis to foreplay and orgasm. There was no holding back in our pursuit of the driving question, is knowing more always good? Here's Mary. Hi there. Hi there. Say hi to everybody. Hello, everybody. Um, So this is going to unfold in five chapters. Chapter one is called Oysters and Martinis. Speaking of which, right on cue. Uh, You spent a lot of time researching how we experience food and drink. Is there anything you learned that you wish you never knew? Uh, Yeah, Uh, there's a process when you take food into your mouth and you chew it up. What you're doing is called um, intraoral bolus rolling. You're forming, uh, you're taking food apart and you're putting it back together in a bolus. And once you know this, when you chew, if you think about it, it's the most revolting thing. <laughs> like I, and, and also, um, here's a, I learned that when um, that saliva it breaks down starches. So if you spit into your own yogurt or custard, you will see it sort of break down and become watery. And I had actually on well, the who to- hasn't done that? <laughs> so I had on a to-do list the whole time I was working on Gulp, spit into yogurt, and I couldn't do it. So, so you know some, what? They yeah. have yogurt here. So they maybe after so could, yeah. the show, we could all do it together. Because like happens really quickly, and it's yes. sort of a miraculous thing that your saliva does, but I couldn't, I don't want to see my saliva make custard and yogurt. It is kind of an incredible thing. thing. Like, did you yeah. come out of it thinking the body is just more amazing yeah. than I had ever? It, I did. I always do, yeah. Is there anything that you learned about food that you're so glad to know that you feel like changes the way you experience it? Yeah, um, yeah, it's called um, retronasal olfaction, which is okay. You don't know this, but you have two, you love terms you, like that, I don't do, you? I do retronasal. You, everybody has two sets of nostrils. This blew my mind. There we go. You got your lungs yes, right. You, you have, have two sets of nostrils. You have, knew that. You have the when you're breathing in nostrils, and then when you breathe out, you've got this like you're blowing. You're wafting the air up that's in your mouth and into your nose, so you experience all the you know the lovely gin, fragrancey stuff. Campari. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was pretty cool. That, that was pretty cool. So, but you don't want to do it too vigorously on the exhale because then you have nasal regurgitation. Mm. <laughs> Maybe we'll save that for the next time. <laughs> um, okay, chapter two. Yeah. It's called foreplay and orgasm. 
you know a lot about what happens to the body during sex. In fact, yeah. you know what happens to your body during sex and the husband of your body, the body of your husband. <laughs> Should we do that one again?
Um, there was a point where Dr. Dane, that Ed and Dr. Dane are having a conversation about their children, and Ed goes, and, and your youngest, how old is your youngest now? And Dr. Dane says, um, just two. You can now? <laughs>
and yet she's dead, uh, and then they cut her open and they remove the heart and the lungs and the kidney, kidneys and the liver, and they go, and this woman as a dead slab, really, she's saving five lives, and it was unbelievably moving, and I thought, what an amazing gift as a dead person yes. to give. And it's just surgery, you know, we abide surgery on our loved ones, it's surgery, it's like it's an incision, and we remove the organs and we sew it up. Yeah. But I think, I think having seen it, it you know, demystifies it, and it's, you know, it, so I, I, everybody needs to just watch that, and they'll be like, I want to do that. But people think, oh, if I know, if I knew, oh, I know I'd, I would be less likely, but in fact, once you know and you see it, it's just surgery. It's not mutilation. Mm -hmm. It's not horrible. It's not bloody. It's, it's surgery that saves five people's lives. Yeah. So. And do you think everyone should see a cadaver in their day? I mean, what's the impact of looking at a full of bodies? Again, I think, I think, yeah, because a cadaver is, it's a weird, when I went to the, the body farm is a place where they study human decomposition, University of Tennessee, it's a forensics facility. They're what looking, a job, right? What a job. But it's, it's interesting. But, and it's a lovely piece of wooded, like an acre, and you go in and there's squirrels and birds chirping, and you look in the distance and there's a guy lying under the tree. And you, even from it, from here to the end of the room, you're like, that guy's not nothing. That guy's dead. You, it's this very visceral sense of stillness and emptiness, and which immediately makes you think, somebody's checked out. Where did they go? So it's kind of a ponderous philosophical moment. It's not like, ew, it's a cadaver. The throw yeah. up. It's not like that. It's uh, until you get closer. Um, <laughs> um, it's interesting to think that it would release you from, like my father's this kind of guy who's totally separated in terms of how his body feels and how he is. So he'll say, how are you? And he'll say, God, love you, I'm great. And then my mother will get on the phone and say, did your father tell you that he was in the ER last night until 4 a.m.? And then I say, put him back on the phone. And I say, what happened? What you in the yeah. ER? I think she told me you were great. He's like, I am great. That was my body. Great. That was my body. I am great. My body right. is something altogether different. Right. So I wonder if part of the impact of spending all that time with bodies, both living don living organs and also these cadavers, helps you to separate from the state of you and the state right. of the thing that you walk around in. Yeah, there's there's definitely uh, um, it's very obvious when you see when you see a dead body that that is it's a hull, it's a vessel, and um, I I heard when I wrote Stiff I was concerned that people would read it. It's about kind of post-mortem careers and things that have been done with cat cadavers and look for research, not just going to an anatomy lab. And I thought people are going to tear up their donor form and they find out well, what's entailed. Like, what if you're in an automotive crash test kind of mm -hmm. research mm -hmm. scenario? And in fact, that what happened is people people were uh, so many people wrote in saying, "I really want to do this," because that once they understood, you know, the, the details, like, okay, you're not a crash test. Automotive safety, they're not putting the guy in a car, putting a plank on the gas pedal and slamming it into a wall, which people assume. It's a very controlled, it's like a guy, he's in a blue leotard. I don't know why it's blue. It's very smurf blue. So you have this cadaver, and he's sitting in... That's why I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I know, the dancing in leotard. Yeah. It's, it's, not, it's not a good look for a lot of people. I need to so there's a guy, you know, in a smurf blue leotard, and he's in a driver's seat, and, and there's like this sort of humanity to it, because they're trying to get him to sit in the driving position, and he's dead. So, <laughs> so like, they get him all set up, and, he, and like, you know, be three, two, one, and kind of go like, 
And they're like, get the witch. And they were like, then we can let's get one in. And they're like, they'd be, everything would be set up because they had the computers and they had the you know the camera and everything. They'd go, okay, we're ready to go. And they'd go, like, <laughs> but it was such a you know it was a linear impactor. It was just this piston just like boom hits them in the shoulder, and that simulates a T-bone crash at 30 miles an hour. There's no violence. There's no blood. There's no crashing car noise. It's just boom. And then they put a pillow here. And he falls over, <laughs> and that's it. And then they do an autopsy, and they look at what does that impact do, and then they can calibrate the dummies to be more accurate to save more lives. And people are like, I'll do that. For sure. For sure. Where, it might be the most yeah. useful you could ever be. Right, life. but if you just... <laughs> <laughs> it's a level, right? I don't know how useful are any of us yeah, until like, we're dead. Exactly. Yeah, the fun really starts when you're dead. You're listening to Exactly on KQED Public Radio. We'll be back after a break. Support for this podcast comes from the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation supports academic research and civil dialogue on the deepest and most perplexing questions concerning the cosmos, human purpose, and the divine. Learn more at templeton.org. The Templeton Foundation. Stay curious. This program was recorded live at Medium, the place to share stories and ideas that matter most to you. If you're enjoying this conversation, please check out our podcast with journalist and Pulitzer Prize winner, Nicholas Kristof. We saw a surgery give a woman her sight back for $40, a 20-minute operation by a nurse. One of the aides said, uh, you know, do you need some help getting back to your home? And she pushed him out of her way and said, get out of the way. I'm walking home. I can see. That's Nicholas Kristoff on our podcast at kqed.org slash exactly or on iTunes. Welcome back to Exactly. I'm Kelly Corrigan with writer Mary Roach. Well, okay, so that takes us to chapter four, which is the great beyond. Um, So off the top of my head, knowing your work, I wondered if when I called you and said I was calling for medium, if you thought that we were like a chapter (laughs) of ghost hunters or something. Dubois and Dubois would be doing the interview. That's right. Or if heaven really is Florida without the humidity. Um, but what we really need to talk about is how does the focus on facts yeah. change belief? And is that super dangerous? Like, how badly do we need to believe that we can't know? I am so jealous of people who believe in an afterlife. Like, my mother, my mother never expressed any fear of death. My mother was like, I know I'm going to have a full Catholic mass. I've dotted all my T's and, no, I've dotted all my I's and crossed all my T's. And I'm going, I know where I'm going, and I'm not afraid. And that's so great, because even if you're wrong, even if you believe that, even if you're wrong, you never know. So it's win-win. Or someone like me, I'm like, ah, there's nothing now. Then, yeah, it's going to suck. I'm gone, gone. So uh, I don't know that it's dangerous, but I envy people who yeah. have a firm and solid belief in something more. Yeah, yeah. I envy them as well. Yeah. Um, do you think it could be too depressing to know too much about? What did you, what kinds of stuff did you learn when you were working on the Afterlife book? Oh, it was really it was a book. It was a, a book about people trying to apply scientific method 
to the afterlife and the soul, which is a really, I, I just love scientists. I love that. There, if there's a guy, Duncan McDougall, who was an MD in the, you know, late 1915, who had this idea that, okay, um, first of all, he worked at a TV sanitarium, so he had a steady supply of dying people. And he also had a very large, uh, it was an industrial silk scale, a large scale for weighing big bundles of silk. And he had this idea, what if we put a bed and a dying guy on a giant scale, and then as he dies, we'll see if the scale goes down just a little bit. <laughs> and, 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 and did that with uh, just a number. Just like the soul the, soul the weight of the soul, and he could prove the substance of the soul. And I just love it. And he, had, he wrote up papers that were published in, I don't know, American Scientist or something early journal, and I, I just love that intersection of science and belief, and that, that people really believe there was a way. There were people who were like expert uh, cryptographers who thought, okay, you, you have a code that's unbreakable, and you tell somebody who's dying, okay, here's the encrypted thing that you have to keep in your head, and I will transmit the key to the code, and then you from the afterlife will communicate with me, and they, like, they write up these papers, I'm like, I love these people. Just like trying to apply scientific method yeah. to something that is in the realm of uh, philosophy, religion, belief. Mm -hmm. It was fascinating. It wasn't really a personal quest. I didn't expect to have the answer to right. the age-old question. Is there hubris in trying to know? Like, is, it, is the assumption that you can know? I don't think there's hubris. I, I think there's just um, curiosity and a lot of times, um, a lot of times the people who are involved in this work have lost someone close to them. Harry Houdini, Harry Price, the two Harrys, who were, they were magicians and they were, um, they'd also lost someone close to them and so they were debunkers. They bring in these mediums and they go, yeah, this is, this is what you're doing. This is how she's doing it. But always it was like, the next one I'm really excited about. I think this person is really able to communicate. Uh -huh. Bring them in. But I, I, no, I don't think there's humor. I think there's um, hope and a certain amount of Fear and, and need. sadness and need. Yeah. 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 All right. So chapter five is conclusions, and then we're gonna yeah, whip it through the chapters. Uh, right. I love it. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand, curiosity has killed plenty of cats. Uh, on the other hand, do we really want to advocate for ignorance, ignorant bliss? I mean, where would that leave us if we had turned our head away from uncomfortable information? We'd all be sitting here smoking cigarettes and buying Enron stock. Um, <laughs> So, you know, it's like, do we want to know how the sausage is made just so we know which sausage to eat? Um, so where do you come out on this whole thing? Like, are you across the board happy to know, happy to know, if you go back to the top of the conversation, happy to know your parents' finances, happy to know the NSA tactics, happy to know what goes on at Guantanamo, happy to know... Yeah, yes, 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 yeah. You know, for example, right, um, Right now, I'm, uh, my husband's father is, you know, in his last, I don't know, months, year, whatever, and um, we're just finding out, in fact, they don't have any money, and they don't have anything set aside, and we don't, and we're just finding out the actual medical facts, because they never asked, and they kind of, there were people that had their heads in the sand a lot, and so it's now uh, that, uh, the whole situation for everyone has become all, uh, has become difficult, because Ed's family doesn't, they're, they're like, you don't want to know. It's like the Larry David, like, where he calls up his, his uh, someone in the family, and they say, your mother has been ill. It's like, why didn't you tell me? It's like, we didn't want you to worry. We didn't right. want you to worry. And it's like, okay, look, I'm going to come out and see her. Well, 
instead. Yeah. <laughs> like, we didn't want you to worry. It's like, yeah. So his family is like that, and the damage that that, I mean, it's all well meant. Yeah. But the uh, the problems that it causes. I mean, I, I so I'm I'm the I'm the person who comes into the family and just blurts it all out. So yeah. I was thinking about my husband and I went hiking in the Alps this summer, and it was so great. And he kept turning around. And he was always ahead of me. And he kept turning around and saying, "Isn't this awesome?" And I thought, "Oh, this is so great." And I was attributing his feelings to us and our adventurous spirit and how we've gotten out there together and, and there we were at the top of the world. Yeah. And then later I had this thought like, oh, that was just endorphins talking. You know, like because I know about endorphins and I know how they work and I know where they come from. You're mental. Am I? <laughs> Perhaps. Um, but I had this feeling like I'd really rather not know. And I know yeah. about the vagus nerve. And so do you guys know about the vagus nerve? So it's like this thing that gets triggered. And it's it's often um, people have religious experiences. Yeah. But then there are other people that say, oh, you just have a very active vagus nerve. Partial, triggered by partial uh, certain kind of epilepsy, very mild seizures that yes. make you feel at one with the universe. Religious experiences, yeah. And sometimes the vagus nerve can be triggered. Like you could put on the right music and light candles and have vaulted ceilings and be in these quiet spaces. Yeah, yeah. And all of that can contribute to this right. feeling. Yeah. And that to me is so totally depressing because. Yeah. But on the other side of that, when you understand hormones, think of all the, <laughs> think of all the times you've been like, I'm just so, I'm just, this just really upsets me. I'm just so off and so yeah. upset. And the next day you're like, what was that? Yeah. It took me a long time to kind of put that sort of together. It's like, you know, oh, I, I wish all, all those years when I was younger, I was like, just take a look at the freaking calendar. And there's your answer. I don't know. I mean, just like, yeah, okay. It's, and even if it's not hormones, it's nice to just the next day go, yeah, yeah, that was nothing. That's fine. It's just hormones. Yeah. I was thinking a little bit too about the legal system and how they don't really believe in our ability to compartmentalize or get over things. So they deem like certain evidence is inadmissible. Like in a rape case, you can't talk about their prior sexual history. And then the medical system, it doesn't believe we can compartmentalize. And so they've set up HIPAA so that your employer never has to know that you had a manic episode or yeah. whatever else. Because they those systems have decided we right. can't handle too much information. But, but I think it's a, I think it's hopeful. I think it's saying, you know, this is how this person was, but they may have changed. Let's not, let's make it, let's start with blank slate. Uh-huh. Let's judge them for that. And not that everybody's young once. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I was working on Gulp, I spent it for the rectum chapter. <laughs> um, I wanted to get, you know, I mean, it is a, it's a storage space, the rectum. And I thought, well, what would be an interesting, who would have an interesting perspective? And I thought, okay, well, people who smuggle things rectally, because that's, you know, your stretch receptors are activated. That becomes very hard to hold it in. How do they do that? So I talked to this guy, and as it turned out, um, and I didn't know this before I went in, it turns out he was, he's serving life for murder. And I, and I was like, ooh. Because I, you know, before I went, in, I said, "Oh, by the way, what's this guy in for?" And they turned the, you know, the monitor around. It's like capital letters blinking, murder. <laughs> and I'm like, you're going to be down the hall in that room with him. I'm like, just us. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, um, he was just a lovely man who had done something, at, you know, at age 19 uh, when he was a kid, and he surveyed. And uh, it was just, 
I don't know. It was sad that that's his whole life. And, uh, you know, I said, was it a gang thing? Is that what he goes, no, it was about a girl. It wasn't even my girl. <laughs> so anyway, yeah. So in that, that case, better not to know. Or uh, the legal so system. To, yeah. yeah, not to. Uh, I don't know. Where did we? I think the other oh, thing about it, it. This is actually water people. The last thought I had was around um, the relationship between knowing and empathy. So I was thinking about veterans and how, you know, it used to just, we just sent them off and they came home and who knows what happened there and who knows how they were feeling now and, and how their transition back into, yeah. you know, civil society was. And now, you know, they've spent so much time collecting all this data and really looking at it unflinchingly what it's like to do that work and then come home and try to integrate again. And the words all change from crazy to PTSD and then the yeah. public perception changes and then policy changes. And so I, if you extrapolate that, then you think it's really important that we know yeah. Yeah. that we keep asking right. the questions yeah. because we're just going to have to tolerate being uncomfortable sometimes mm -hmm. because at the end of it, there are answers. Right. And you can't really get yeah. to empathy, I don't think, unless you're yeah. willing to like sort of see the whole thing. Yeah, if you're, you need to sort of step into that person's world. And, and just, you know, I hate to, uh, you know, and I hear people talking about you know, entire groups, entire nations, like in Iran, they, blah, blah, blah. It's like, what's this they in Iran? Have you sat down to lunch with one Iranian person? Well, you, you know, you're, making these generalizations. I just, I, I would love everybody to, you know, before you make any kind of a, like a blanket statement like that, you must go and have lunch with one person from that group. Mm -hmm. that, you know, just, um, and from that comes understanding. And yes. that's, that's knowing, that's good knowing. Yeah. All right, so, so if you could say four words to anyone, who would you address and what would you say? Uh, can we go back in time? Sure. Okay, I would, I would address myself at 16, and I would say, you are really pretty. <laughs> After all was said and done, I have to say I agreed with Mary. In fact, I think of her every time I dig into my bank statements to understand exactly what those little fees are, or when I sit up with my kids until midnight to try to understand exactly what they're feeling. Knowing more is unsettling and sometimes totally agonizing, but also essential and always better. Thanks for coming on the ride. Be in touch. I'll talk to you soon. This is Exactly, produced by KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. If you enjoyed this conversation, you'll definitely like my talk with thought leader and biographer Walter Isaacson about how our ideas and myths about innovation are all wrong. Whether it was the heroes who did the first mm -hmm. computer, the women who programmed the first computer, they all do it as teamwork. And so I realize that creativity is a team sport. You can hear more from Walter Isaacson at kqed.org slash exactly or on iTunes. Thanks to our team, producers Kat Snow and Anna Adlerstein, coordinating producer Melissa Williams, engineer Jim Bennett, production manager Jennifer Harrison, and executive producer Michael Isip. My name is Kelly Corrigan. I'm so happy you're here. Please come back. <laughs>